You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. folks, and welcome to episode 47 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bushots, and this is the show for August 2017. Well, there's no panel this uh, month, it's just little old me talking to you guys one-on-one. And I've decided to start a sort of a series where I pick a photographic term, and we just talk through it. So, starting at the very practical end of things, well, what does it really mean... And then moving from what it is to how it affects the art and craft of photography. So I thought I'd kick this series off with the photographic term dynamic range. So let's start with the very basic question, well, what is dynamic range? So at its very most basic level, dynamic range is simply the difference between the darkest thing that can be discerned or recorded and the brightest thing can be discerned or recorded. So in the real world, there is an absolute black. In theory, if there are actually genuinely zero photons bouncing off something, then it is actually perfectly black. But there's no such thing as perfectly white, except, I guess, infinity. But of course, nothing, whether we're using our eyes to look at something or whether we're using some sort of device to record something, Nothing can see all the way down to perfect black. Nothing concerned can discern the difference between zero pixels and one, or not pixels, photons. You know, zero photons and one photon. So there is a minimum level of brightness that can be discerned or registered or recorded at any point. So that is your your, your zero, right? It's not actually that there are no photons. It's that you you or the device or the thing can't tell the difference between a certain level of intensity and no light, blackness, zero. And so that's one side of the dynamic range. Whatever it is that sort of your, the minimum amount of light you can record, which is often called your black point. And so basically from your black point down, everything is considered the same. It's all black. It's all zero. And then at the other end, there's going to be a point beyond which you can't tell any more that there is more light than a certain amount. You're, well, you know, maybe if, if it's your eyes, you just you, you can't see anything brighter than a certain amount. Or if it's some sort of sensor, you can't record anything brighter than a certain amount. And so that basically everything from that brightness up is also the same. It's pure white. Now, it's not pure white unless you can go all the way to infinity, and you can't. So we call that your white point. And the dynamic range is simply the distance between the darkest thing you can discern and the brightest thing you can discern. So it's the distance between your black point and your white point. Now, pretty much everything really in photography has a dynamic range, right? The human eye has a dynamic range. Our camera sensors have dynamic ranges. Digital image formats have dynamic ranges. Our monitors have dynamic ranges. Everything has a limit to how much of a difference it can represent or record or discern or see between the darkest thing and the brightest thing so they're not all the same size though so yes everything has a dynamic range but they're not all the same size and one of the biggest 
factors in photography is the simple fact that the human eye has a substantially bigger dynamic range than pretty much any of our photographic equipment. And that really affects how we do photography. It's one of the most fundamental things sort of in the art and craft of photography. So I did a bit of reading trying to figure out actual numbers to put in these things. And you'll find dynamic range expressed in two ways. So for computer science-y stuff, basically image formats, screens, camera sensors, you'll generally find it expressed in bits. And it's actually quite a simple way of expressing it because in an image file, every pixel has a brightness, a luminance. And that luminance is represented literally as a number. And that number will have a certain possible size. So in computers, everything is ones and zeros. And you have to basically allocate a certain amount of ones and zeros to represent your thing. And the amount of ones and zeros is the amount of bits. So a one-bit number can hold exactly two values, zero and one. So a true monochrome image, a genuinely black and white image, is a one-bit image. Every pixel is either black or white, and that is the tiniest possible dynamic range. You add an extra bit, you now have 2 to the power of 2. So you now have four possible brightness values. You can have black, 0, dark grey, 1, light grey, 2, and white, 3. You add another bit, well then you have um, 2 to the power of 3 possibilities, which is 8. Another bit, you get 16, 32, 64, 128, 256. And you keep clocking up, clocking up, clocking up the number of bits. So... That is how a lot of our techie stuff is done in bits. And generally speaking, um, your computer screen and the JPEG image format can both handle 8 bits. So a normal display is an 8-bit display and a normal JPEG is 8 bits of data. So that is kind of where we set the bar, really. That's what we consider to be normal in our modern computing world. Now, in the non non-computery world, we don't tend to use bits as a way of measuring things, um, certainly not in photography. So for the more physical stuff, the unit that tends to be used is f-stops, or EV, exposure values, EV. So we know that you can darken a scene by a third of an EV or whatever, or brighten a scene, you know, one f-stop or whatever. So you can measure the difference between the darkest and the brightest thing in the same unit, which is your f-stop. So conveniently it's pretty much holds true that a bit and an f-stop are approximately the same. So that's kind of handy for what we want to talk about. So let's let's set the baseline. So how big of a dynamic range can your average human eye deal with? Well, the answer is that the human eye is actually really good, as these kind of things go, and the human eye can handle 20 bits or 20 stops of dynamic range. Now, a JPEG is 8. Our computer screens are 8, but our eyes are capable of 20. So that immediately tells you that when you're dealing, you know, when you're taking photographs, you have a bit of a problem because your eye is better at capturing the difference between the brightest thing and the darkest thing than you can see in the finished product of your photo. Now things get a little bit more mushy because actually our camera sensors, the actual chips inside our cameras, are actually better than our screens and then the JPEG format. They actually, depending on the sensor, depending on whether it's like a phone camera, a point-and-shoot, or a high-end DSLR, 
there's a bit of a variance, but they basically range approximately between 10 and 12 bits of dynamic range. So our cameras are capturing more than they can put into the JPEG. So unless you're shooting in RAW, there's 2 to 4 bits worth of dynamic range discarded, chucked in the bin. Which is one of the reasons why you want to shoot in RAW. Because if you're shooting in RAW, you get to hold on to that data. And then when you go into your photo editing app and you have all of those sliders for adjusting things, those sliders aren't having to invent data or interpolate or guess, make educated guesses at data. They actually have extra dynamic range to reach into. So when you use the slider to brighten the shadows, they're not guessing at what those shadows look like. The actual camera sensor captured those shadows because it has an extra... 3, let's just round it to 3, let's just say it's 11, because that's halfway between 10 and 12. It actually has an extra 3 stops of data, so it's a stop and a half down and a stop and a half up. So you can generally brighten your shadows by a stop and a half without having to start interpolating, and you can darken your highlights by a stop and a half without having to start interpolating. So there's real value in keeping that raw image and using that as the basis for your processing, because it actually has this data that doesn't fit on your screen or your JPEG, but the data is in that file. And so you can use it to pull it into the visible bit of the file, the 8 bits we we render out. Um, for comparison, um, physical film actually has a lower dynamic range than any of our modern digital stuff. So while our modern digital cameras are definitely inferior to the wonderful human eye, things have gotten a lot better. Um the absolute nadir, the absolute low point has to be slide film. And one of the things, if you talk to people who've been photographing for a long time, probably the most challenging medium is slide film. And the reason it's so challenging is because you have no room, no wiggle room whatsoever. Because its dynamic range is a whopping five stops, five bits. That's absolutely tiny. So if you, if you have any sort of shadow at all, going to go to black. Any sort of highlight at all is going to go to white. I mean, you have so little wiggle room. Now, 35mm film, there's a bit of variance from company to company, but on average, you're talking, and I should say this, slide film is the same, right? It's not exactly five bits or five stops. It's approximately and different stock or slightly different. And in fact, film may respond differently to different colours of light, which is a whole other kettle of fish. But anyway, your average slide film is about 5 bits, 5 stops, and your average 35mm film is about 7 bits. So 35mm film is not massively below JPEG, but it is below JPEG. And that that's interesting. So even the JPEG, which is so inferior to the human eye, is actually progress from where we were 20, 30 years ago. So the question to ask is... What do, what effect does the fact that our recording devices, our cameras, whether they be film or digital, the fact that they have a lower dynamic range to our eye, what effect does that actually have when we take a photograph? Uh, I still remember very clearly the first time I discovered the effect. It's um, when, when working in, in Ireland, so Ireland is quite far north, and in the winter, the sun doesn't rise very high into the sky, and so you have long shadows. And to the human eye, those shadows are not empty. Those shadows are absolutely chock-a-block full of detail, because our eyes have 20 whole bits of dynamic range, and so they can see into those shadows no problem whatsoever. You stand there and you take out your brand-new fancy-pants digital camera, and you take a photograph, 
and the detail in those shadows just vanishes because your camera doesn't have enough dynamic range to pull detail in there and you have these deep, dark shadows. And it doesn't look in your photograph like it looked in the real world. And the reason is because the real world you're seeing at 20 bits with your human eyes and your camera, especially when you're looking at the JPEG, is only in 8 bits. And even if you go into the RAW and you bring up the shadows, you're still only able to get the 10 or 12 bits. So the effect it has is that the way the world photographs and the way the world looks to the eye are not the same. And dealing with that reality is really one of the fundamental parts of the art and craft of photography. And you can have multiple different strategies for dealing with that fact. What I see and what I record will not be the same. They cannot be the same because of the difference in dynamic range between what I'm using to record the image and what I can see with my eye. So what strategies can we deploy for dealing with this fundamental fact? So the we can avoid the problem. Uh, and you avoid the problem by simply choosing very carefully where and when you photograph such that the lighting is good enough that there are no deep shadows or bright highlights. So in other words, if the scene you're photographing doesn't have a big difference between the darkest thing in that scene and the brightest thing in that scene, then it doesn't actually matter that your eyes could see way more dynamic range than the scene has, and your camera can just see a little bit more dynamic range than the scene has. The point is, both your eye and the camera can see everything in that scene, therefore you can photograph it just fine. So, basically, good light is a really good way to avoid problems with dynamic range. So just look for situations where the lighting is such that it's even enough that the camera can capture it all, problem solved, or rather problem avoided. So that's step one. Just don't go to places where the dynamic range falls in that danger zone between what the camera can capture and what the eye can see. Just stay within a world where the physical scene in front of you is no more than 8 bits worth of data, therefore it's fine. Another way, slightly related, is not so much avoid, but just compensate. It's like, okay, fine, there actually isn't enough. It isn't possible in this scene to have only 8 bits worth of dynamic range. So I need to add in some light. I need to maybe take away some light. I need to do something here to adjust. And you can adjust by, as I say, you can either add or take away. So you can add light by putting on a bit of fill flash or using a reflector to bounce some light into a scene. You know, something basically something to put light somewhere. I mean, you could podcast for 20 years on the art of putting light into photographs. Uh, so many different techniques. Uh, it's such a difficult topic. Or you have the opposite approach. Filter some light out. So a graduated neutral density filter will, say, filter a lot of light from the top of your image and not a lot of light from the bottom of your image. So if the sky is too bright... You know, the dynamic range is too big between the sky and the ground. Well, that graduated neutral density filter will let you deal with that. And so that's using the removal of the bright bits to bring the dynamic range into the size you can capture. So that's compensating for the problem. So you can avoid it, you can compensate for it. The other approach, which is artistically arguably a lot more interesting, is don't don't try to work around it. Don't, don't, don't try to, you know, just accept. In fact, don't just accept embrace. Go for it. Actually use this quote-unquote problem, use this fact really, to your advantage to create something artistic. 
And there's two very common ways of doing this. The first is the concept of a high-key shot. So in other words, intentionally allow the vast majority, if not all of your background, to go to pure white. Intentionally blow out the whole background. And this is very often done in portraiture, and it's called a high-key portrait. Because the entire background is just a sea of white in which you have the thing or the person you're photographing. That's high-key. And the inverse of a high-key is the opposite. Intentionally let vast swathes of the photograph go to black. In other words, silhouetting. So whenever you silhouette something, what you're doing is you're embracing the lack of dynamic range. You as a human standing there can see just fine what what it is that's in silhouette in the photograph. Your eye is in no way seeing a silhouette, but you're intentionally choosing to capture a silhouette by embracing the fact that your camera has a lower dynamic range than your eye. And so that is... In some ways, the more zen approach, right? Not just am I not going to compensate or not going to avoid the problem. I'm going to embrace the problem. I'm going to turn, you know, turn it around, do a 180, and turn this quote-unquote problem into a feature. This this isn't a bug; it's a feature. I kind of like that attitude, and it's it's good fun to play with both high key and with silhouettes. And then the other final approach you can take is the technocratic approach. Basically, work around the problem by just capturing enough information to actually record it all and then use mathematics to intelligently compress all that extra information that you have captured into the eight bits available to you in your JPEG on your screen. And that's something called tone mapping. So first thing is you have to capture all of the information. So if the scene contains... 16 bits of information, then you have to capture 16 bits of information. But your camera can't capture 16 bits of information because it can only capture between 10 and 12. So what do you do? Well, you set everything up in a tripod and you capture the scene at one exposure and another exposure and another exposure. And depending on how big the dynamic range is, maybe, you know, 3, 5, 7. Generally speaking, it tends to be symmetric. So you take one exposure sort of in the middle and then you go above and below by, say, a stop and a half. And then if you need more, above and below by another stop and a half. So above and below by three stops. And then above and below by four and a half stops. And you keep going until you have... every All the shadows have some detail captured in one of your images and all the highlights have some details captured in another image. And then you use software to mush... Not mush. To combine intelligently the information from each of those photos of the same scene at different exposures into a single data file, a single, it's effectively an image file, you just can't actually see it because it has more dynamic range than our screens can display, but it's all in there, so it's a data file. And we call that a high dynamic range or an HDR image. So the image has information of this massive dynamic range inside it. But you can't see an HDR image because our computer screens can't actually show it to you. You can't store it in a JPEG to share it to people on Facebook or Twitter or whatever because it doesn't fit in the 8 bits. So you then have to somehow intelligently take that extra information and convert it to 8 bits in such a way that you compress the dynamic range into those 8 bits in in a way that works, and that's tone mapping. So HDR is capturing this more than 8 bits worth of data, and tone mapping is compressing intelligently that more than 8 bits of data into 8 bits of data. So that's, that's why HDR and tone mapping are such related concepts. But that, that is the relationship between the two. It's HDR is all of the data and tone mapping is converting that data into 8 bits. Now, the word high is awfully subjective. Um, so I don't think there's really a formal definition of well, what is high. My definition of high in HDR, in high dynamic range, is more than 8 bits. If you have an image file 
that contains more than 8 bits worth of data than it is in high dynamic range image, in, in my opinion. And that means that raw files are HDRs because they have, depending on your sensor, between 10 and 12 bits of data. And that is definitely more than 8. So you can, and I do this very often, you can tone map single raw images because there is data there that can be pulled out by the tone mapping process. So if you want to get into HDR photography, you do not need a tripod. You do not need to take multiple exposures that you then stack together, which obviously as soon as it gets slightly windy in your outside, it causes problems because all the trees are waggling and so on and so forth. You don't have to go there for a lot of scenes. If the scene you're trying to capture is in the region between 8 and 10, 8 and 11 bits, say, then all you need is the raw and you can tone map the raw. And that's, it's something I do an awful, awful lot. I absolutely love that kind of work. So I, I just find it a really effective way. So tone mapping a single raw is a great way to get maximum value from that single raw image because you're, you're pulling those extra three bits of data out. So let's talk a little bit more about tone mapping. So how is tone mapping different to just a basic compression, right? If you have 20 bits of data and you want to squeeze it into 8 bits, what you can do is just scale it, right? You take the pixel's value, you multiply it by the appropriate ratio to get from where you are to where you need to be. Hey presto, you have compressed the dynamic range. And that is an excruciatingly naive way of turning something with more bits than you can display into the amount of bits you can display. And that will actually not result in a particularly pleasing image because you won't actually get that much value from that kind of thing. So tone mapping is different. And what makes it different is that it's a much more complicated mathematical formula. And it is genuinely very complicated mathematics. So when you open an app for doing tone mapping, you're going to be presented with a whole bunch of sliders. Each of those sliders is an input to the mathematical formula. But one of the absolutely critical things to remember about tone mapping is that the the input to the mathematical formula is not a single pixel. So it doesn't calculate values. It does do it one pixel at a time, but that pixel is not the only input. The, the value for what happens, so basically the output, so the input value is the pixel in the HDR file, and the output value is the pixel's brightness in the JPEG. The, the mapping from HDR to JPEG has as its inputs the value in the HDR, the value of all your sliders, and most critically, the values of its neighboring pixels. And in fact, how many of its neighboring pixels get to play a part in determining that pixel's value is controlled by the sliders even. So when you're dealing with HDR, the value you give a pixel is determined by itself, the settings and the values of all of its neighbors. And what that allows the algorithm to do is to work on areas of an image in a subtle and gradiated way. And so ultimately, the way you should think of it is that when you're doing an HDR tone mapping, so when you're doing tone mapping, what you're doing is you're selectively brightening areas that are too dark and darkening areas that are too bright. And you're doing it in a graduated and gentle way so that you should not have a rough border between the bits you've brightened and the bits you've darkened that should be gradual slope at all times, unless there's some sort of discontinuity in your image, a horizon, an edge. And at an edge, you want the HDR algorithm to be clever enough to realize it's banged off an edge. And it shouldn't be gentle, it should be discontinuous, it should be a short, sharp edge. And that's why the mathematics for tone mapping is so 
damnable hard because that's hard to do. And when you, when the algorithm and or your use of the sliders, because you know there's two parties who can get it wrong with tone mapping. Uh, there is the the algorithm being used by the app you're using may just not be a particularly good algorithm. It, you know that's how those apps compete with each other is by coming up with better mathematical algorithms for doing the tone mapping. And also, your skill as a user of the app may not be up to snuff. And so the reason the image may look awful when you're finished tone mapping it, it may be your fault too. Or, most likely, it's, you know, there's enough blame to go round, and it's both fault. Anyway, where where the algorithms tend to suffer, to struggle, is in two very specific situations tend to cause trouble with tone mapping. So the first is an edge, because the whole point of a tone map is you need to have a gentle change between the bits you've brightened and the bits you've darkened, so the image looks natural. But, like I say, when you hit an edge, gentle doesn't look natural. Gentle gives you halos, because you're brightening stuff on the wrong side of... You know, on one wrong side of the horizon, you're brightening when you shouldn't be, and the other wrong side of the horizon, you're darkening when you shouldn't be. So at the horizon, or at some sort of edge, you really do want a sharp edge. And when you get that wrong, you get halos. And then the other really common problem is where you have a large area of an image that in the real world was exactly the same brightness. So a big blue sky. And because HDR, or sorry, tone mapping likes to do things with graduated steps, what you can end up with is towards the center of your big area that should be the same brightness, it will either noticeably darken as you move to the center or brighten as you move to the center. So your skies are not constant. They're they're coming to a dark spot in the middle or a bright spot in the middle, and that looks absolutely awful and unnatural. Skies are particularly bad for a, a solid-colored sky, but you can have it any, on any sort of field of the same brightness, so a large wall, a large monochrome wall, a large you know, monochrome part of the ground, a field, a lake, or you know, something like that. Anything where you have a large field that should be the same brightness, tone mapping can very easily mess that up. And so there's the two points where you can really see whether or not the combination of the mathematics inside the software you're using and your skills at using that software are up to snuff. Because if you can make those look natural, then you're, you, know, you are skilled and you're using a good tool. So that that's that really is the difficult part. So getting a natural looking tone map takes good software, skill, practice, patience. But it can really be worth it because it allows you to compensate for the fact, to, to actually work around, to technically work around the fact that we see 20 bits of data and our screens can only show us 8 bits of data and our JPEGs can only hold 8 bits of data. And tone mapping lets us square that circle as it were and it hence it's a very powerful tool and hence it's a tool i love because it allows us to photograph more like we see now like with anything in the art and craft photography you can also use tone mapping to go beyond what the eye can see there's no reason to stop at making it look like it looked to your eye you can use the tone mapping technique to bring more detail in than the eye could see or perhaps you may embrace the artifacts, the imperfections of the tone mapping process. Maybe you want the halos because you like that effect. That effect works because you're trying to make some sort of weird psychedelic image that messes with your head or whatever. And there's no reason you can't do that, right? It's art as well as anything else. But do beware that that overcranked HDR look 
it's not quite as fashionable these days, but it was certainly a bit of a fad. And I think a lot of people are quite, they've had quite enough of that. Thank you very much. But as I say, don't let that put you off. If it works for something you're doing, why not? Why not intentionally go too far? Why not intentionally overdrive the image? Also, you can use the HDR algorithm to reduce the dynamic range in an image, to flatten an image by taking all of the sliders and going in the opposite direction. It's not something I have tended to do, but the mathematics works both ways. So you can use HD, sorry, tone mapping to flatten an image, to actually reduce its dynamic range, to, to bring it sort of all into a, a very low contrast mush. And that may be something you actually want to do because it tells a story artistically. So, you know, don't feel that the only kind of tone mapping that you should be doing is naturalistic tone mapping. That is certainly the one that I would argue takes the most skill, and that's certainly a skill I think has great value in learning because it allows you to technologically work around this difference between what our eyes see and what our cameras see. But, you know, hey, it's art, so feel free to do completely mad and weird things if it works. If the, at the end of the day, all that matters is a nice photograph pops out. Yeah, that's kind of all I have that I sort of want to say as part of this episode, but I should also mention that this isn't the first time this topic has been covered. A, it's a bit of a, sort of a bit of a bugbear of mine, right? It's, it is a true fact that throughout the history of photography, tackling, dealing with the difference in dynamic range between what we can capture and what our eyes can see has been such a driving force. It goes back right into the early 1800s, right? Right to the dawn of photography. Photographers have been tackling this in all sorts of cool and creative ways. And we've actually talked about that quite a few times before in the show. But in particular, episode 30 is very much related to this episode. So episode 30 was a panel show with myself, Antonio and Conrad. And we talked basically about HDR. And it was basically me having my standard in defense of HDR. I won't call it a rant. I'd call it a reasoned argument. Um, but we did that as a panel show. It was a fun panel show, so that's back in episode 30. So I'm going to pop the link to episode 30 into the show notes for this episode, which is episode 47. And that, I think, brings us to the... Um, really, that, that's kind of what I wanted to say. So just to remind everyone that I'm going to be uploading the bullet points that I prepared as sort of my guide for this episode. So I don't I do not do scripts. I don't like reading out loud. Um but I do like to prepare bullet notes so that I have a a flowing argument that I get from point A to point B in a sane and sensible way and I sort of plan out my thoughts. So I built up a nested bulleted list of things I wanted to say and I figure actually that may actually be a value to people because effectively it's a, it's a shorthand version of this podcast. So I'm going to pop that into the show notes over at lets-talk.ie. Um, that is also going to include the link to episode 30. So if you happen to pop over there, if you happen to go over there, you will find, as well as show notes for this show and all previous shows, and you can listen to any of the previous shows and all of that, you will also find there uh, three, well, many, large blue buttons under a banner or a heading that says support the show. I would really appreciate it if people did so in some way. So, you know, first off, and most importantly... The single best way to support the show is to tell your friends about it. Word of mouth is one of the absolute most valuable things. Um, so everyone who has recommended the show to someone, thank you very much. That is really appreciated. That really helps. And if you haven't recommended the show in a while, hey, why not you know, let some of your friends, who you think like photography, who you think would enjoy the show, why not, why not share it with them? 
and that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, unfortunately, we live in a world of practicalities, and the simple fact is there are bills that need to be paid to make the show possible. I do not have advertisers, and I don't want to have advertisers because I want what I say to be 100% genuine. So I have always had an aversion to advertisers, which is why which is one of the reasons I've always wanted to run my own podcast, because that way I get to be, I get to say exactly what I want. And there is just no advertisers influencing what I say. If, I, if a company messes up, I get to say they messed up. And I don't ever have this conflict of interest of, oh, sugar, they're a sponsor. Anyway, so the, none of my shows are sponsored. None of my shows have any sort of corporate support. And that's by design. But it does mean that I'm entirely dependent on um, the goodwill of the listeners, you guys. Uh, and it's worked, right? That, you know, I haven't managed to go bankrupt podcasting, which is good. So anyway, there are bills to be paid, and so there are practical things I appreciate your help with, and you can help in a number of practical ways. So telling your friends, easy, reviewing the show on iTunes or your podcaster of choice, another great way to help, and I also appreciate that. But then the more practical stuff, the single most effective way to support the show is to become a patron of the show on Patreon. So you pledge a certain small dollar amount for every episode I publish, and assuming I succeed in publishing those episodes... At the end of the month, you'll get charged, and the money will come to me as a nice big bulk, a nice big, a single bulk payment for all of everyone who supports the show, which means that the PayPal fees are very efficiently handled on all ends, which is basically what Patreon's magic is. It allows small dollar amounts without the processor taking almost all of the money, which is not possible with PayPal directly. That's Patreon's magic. Anyway, the Patreon money comes in at the end of, at the start of the month. And it gets poured into paying the bills, and we're getting to the stage where I'm quite close to having the bills, and so the incomings and the outgoings of podcasting balancing out. Not quite there, and I'll be honest, I have a bit of an issue coming up. My computer is getting old, it needs replacing, and I don't actually have sufficient funds available to do so. So I'm a little bit nervous about that, because one of these days I'm going to try power on my trusty iMac, and it's not going to start, and then I'm going to be in deep trouble. But anyway, that's we'll leave that aside for now. So anyway, you pledge, supporting the show on Patreon is the best way to support the show, and or the most effective way, I guess, of financially, physically, practically supporting the show. Um, there will be exactly two shows a month, one Apple, one photography, so if you'd like to contribute $5 a month, pledge $2.50 per episode. Basic idea. There's also a PayPal button, which is a really effective way of making one-off contributions. It's not a, not a good way to send, you know, $2 or whatever, but a great way to make a one-off or annual or something contribution of, you know, 5 10 whatever dollars. And then there are also ways of supporting the show by buying something. So there's a Zazzle store where you can buy merchandise which has the logo on it, so you kind of become a walking advertisement, and I get a percentage of those sales. And then there are two much more nerdy ways of supporting the show, but they're, if you need those particular nerdy services, they're actually a really effective way of supporting the show. So you can use my affiliate link for DigitalOcean to buy virtual uh, private server space. It's basically a virtual machine in the cloud where you can host stuff of your own if you need a virtual machine uh, or web server, whatever. That's a really good way to do it. And DigitalOcean are actually the company that hosts less-talk.ie, which is why it's such an effective way to support the show because it basically goes towards my hosting bill. Uh, which is a great way to help. And then the other thing is domain registration. And I have an affiliate link with Hover.com, who are a domain registrar who aren't big on upsell. And they're actually the domain registrar I use for everything, apart from .ie domains, because I don't support .ie domains, unfortunately. Uh, but I use used, uh, them for everything. And so, again, supporting me there by using my affiliate link is very helpful. 
but both of those last two only work if you actually need hosting or a domain name. But if you do, please consider using those affiliate links. Anyway, I think I've rambled on long enough. Um, just to say again, thank you very much everyone who supports the show. I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, feel free to give me feedback on these, whether you get value out of this particular style of show where it's just me talking on a topic. And if this, if, if people like this, then there's quite a few other photographic terms that we can work through whenever there, whenever I feel like doing a, a solo show, a one-man show. Um so, as I say, let me know. And also, if you have suggestions for particular photographic terms that you would like to get this treatment, uh, do please send them along too. You'll find the contact form over at lets-talk.ie. Okay, well, until next time, I've been your host, Bart Bouchots. You can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Looking for a podcast to get your geek on? Then listen to my favorite ladies podcast, The Three Geeky Ladies. Join Alyssa, Suze, and Vicky as they discuss tech products and other topics that caught their attention. The Three Geeky Ladies podcast on the MyMac Podcasting Network.